Um, this morning, I'm going to go to 1 Peter chapter 3. I know that that's not following chapter 1. It's normally chapter 2. It's just that I was working on 2 and a part of 3 and ended up having more material than I could share, and I thought I would stick on the passage that I'd spent the most time on. So I'll go back and catch 2 a little bit later, but not this week. 1 Peter chapter 3. What Peter starts into in chapter 2, um, as Kurt had mentioned earlier, is dealing with authority relationships. You know, a few weeks back we hit this out of Ephesians where um, Paul, in addressing it, goes husbands and wives, then children and parents, and then on to servants and masters. Peter's approach is to go out and say, talk about emperors and authorities, and servants and masters, and then husbands and wives. And so I got into this passage in regard to husbands and wives, and it's one of those passages that, as a pastor, it's loaded with enough bombs that you're kind of going, I don't even like this thing. Um, but the reality is, is that there's beauty in all of God's Scripture if you look at it. And so that's where we're headed. But what I want to address first is that when God created humanity, He created them male and female, and He created them to rule over creation. So there always was an authority attached to humanity, and it was both men and women with the creation idea, right? And when He, had, when he creates woman out of man, he talks about bringing into relationship a partner. He doesn't talk about a minion or another servant, but he's talking about someone to share life with and, in a sense, link. And, and when they talk about mates, you know, when I go to the plumbing store and buy parts, I get a female end and a male end to, to mate. Well, that idea is, is a much wider term. And, and it's like this complementary attachment, so to speak, and complementary roles together. And so that's, that's the idea coming out of creation. That said, authority relationships in humanity have always been a part of it as well, and men are told to lead their homes. When we hit 1 Peter 3, um, let's, let's look at this, um, let's see. In 1 Peter 2, he says, Be subject to the Lord's, for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether emperor, as supreme, or governors. Then he goes on a little bit later, Servants to your masters, not only the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. In this, he puts out an argument that says, Christ now is in charge of all things. In 1 Peter 3, he says he has all authority over all, all uh, authority structures. Also, in the end of chapter 2, he makes his declaration. He says, Christ was able to submit himself to ungodly people for ungodly means and yet accomplish his goals. And it's through his wounds that you are healed. And it's through his death and resurrection that you have your salvation. So he says, the, the fears of not being able to get things done by submitting to others, he says, Christ kind of blew that out of the water. So let's take that then and move into this 1 Peter chapter 3. If you're a wife, you must put your husband first, 
Even if he opposes our message, you will win him over by what you do. No one else will have to say anything to him because he will see how you honor God and live a pure life. I wish this was true 100% of the time. It's not. But he's making a declaration and says it's not about your words as much as your action that's going to have influence over this guy. He goes on then and says, don't depend on things like fancy hairdos or gold jewelry or expensive clothes to make you look beautiful. Be beautiful in your heart by being gentle and quiet. This kind of beauty will last, and God considers it very special. So he's making a point in this declaration and saying, true beauty has depths inwardly that supersede what's outward. Furthermore, when you take on this issue, he's, we recognize outward beauty is temporal, right? Already in this passage or in this text, he's talked about human life being like the grass of the field. It, it withers and fades. And so he's saying the temporal does not supersede the eternal. What you do that has eternal impact and how you live in an eternal way has priority over the temporal. So he's saying, even in regard to beauty, the external takes a back seat to what's internal. Um, moving on. Um, in Ecclesiastes, there's, um, I want to hit one thing. I forgot to put in this verse, but Paul addresses this almost identically in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses um, 9 and 10. It's almost as if they'd read each other's passages, but I'm assuming that this was New Testament teaching throughout. And so what they're putting out and saying, what goes on inside and what comes out in the way of character is more important than how you look. That said, I want to draw some other verses out. Um, Ecclesiastes, in wrestling with the meaning of life, says that when you come to a place of security in the Lord, and you're, you recognize that you can have value even though this life is temporal, he makes this declaration. He says, dress up, comb your hair, look your best, life is short. Love your wife, so enjoy being with her. This is what you're supposed to do as you struggle through life. This is a guy that says there's a time and place for all things. Ecclesiastes 3, remember that passage? Time to be born, a time to die, and, and all the other. In that same third chapter, he makes a declaration. He says, there's nothing better for a man to eat, drink, and see good in all his labor. If you can find that sense of identification in the Lord with what you're doing on this earth, he says, that is a wonderful place to be, a powerful place. He said he set eternity in the hearts of men, but they can't fathom it from beginning to end. So there's this pondering, why am I here? What's going on? If you can find this niche where you're saying, I understand. I know what I'm here for. He says that's a powerful, powerful place to be. What I want to do then is jump to Proverbs 5. I, when I was looking at these passages, my mind is wandering through a number of things. And when I was on this whole thing of beauty, uh, I went back to Proverbs 5. It says, be happy with the wife you married when you are young. She is beautiful and graceful. Just like a deer, you should be attracted to her and stay deeply in love. You youpers can understand that passage. Uh, no, that's a strange one for us. But beauty was associated with the gracefulness of that particular animal. 
And, and so the gracefulness is associated. He takes it and says of his wife, I don't know how that'll do for you at home. Uh, you'll have to try it. Don't let me know. Uh, but what I want to do is look at some of the other translations because they're more graphic, but there are some words that I really want to hone in on. A loving deer, a graceful doe, let her breast fill you at all times with delight and be intoxicated always in her love. This passage is surrounded by texts that say, don't be wandering off committing adultery with someone else. It's earlier in chapter 5, it's in 6, it's in 7. Lengthy passages saying, don't be this guy that wanders away. What intrigues me, though, in, these particular, in this particular verse is that there's two terms that uh, this delight in and be filled with and intoxicated by, those terms normally are used in a negative sense. The first one is similar to getting drunk. Let her make you drunk. Be intoxicated with her. That's not normally a good thing, right? The second term is like wandering astray. Let her take you astray, captivate you, intrigue you, satiate you. What, what's going on with this? In the last uh, couple years, I've, I've come to a term with Shar in regard to beautiful distraction. And I've associated with that when we start to walk out the door, if I dare say something that wasn't finished before we get out the door, she will turn and run me over if I'm in the way immediately and just go back and do whatever I brought up. And I'm going, this distraction drives me nuts at times. The other side of that is that it's a glue that holds our home together because she's willing to just change course and fix things. And so I've begun to appreciate it rather than just be upset, you know, and just say, you know what, if I want to get out of the door on a certain time, I am not bringing this up, you know, just because that's the way we function. But I've grown to appreciate it because it has a very positive side. What I want to suggest to you too is that within a husband and wife relationship, that a wife has the opportunity and ability to distract her husband from this anxiety and, and locked-in focus that he brings home from work and, uh, and the rest. And the tendency of guys is just to hone in and drive, 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 drive. And they need to be broken free of that at times. And God has designed a way for that to take place. How did you get that out of this passage? I don't know, but that's where I'm at. I look at it, and I'm going, there are times when distraction is needed. And I think God has truly done this. And guys that go wandering elsewhere to look for it are fools. That's what the Bible's declaring. But he's saying there's an opportunity in the home for this as well. Why, why this obsession, except that God desires it to also be a beautiful thing. Um, in this 
particular passage, there is no function mentioned, right? Enjoy your wife so you can have lots of kids. It's not there. It's, it's about pleasure, and it's about distraction. And so, in a sense, God ordained for a joyful time together. I think we have the right to pray for this in our marriages. I think out of passages like this, we have the right to say, God, make this the most that you would desire. And there are times when we need to go back to the Lord and say, show me what needs to happen here. On both sides, show me what it means to be a good lover. It's part of your design. It's part of what you've called us to in relationship. It's a good thing. Um, so that said, the, uh, the New Testament in Paul's writings makes this comment. He says, be fair with each other about having sex. A wife belongs to her husband instead of herself, and a husband belongs to his wife instead of himself. So don't refuse sex. He just lays it out there and says, you were designed to work together. And so you're designed to enjoy each other as well. Um, I want to make sure I got my notes right. I was uh, obviously walking through this this week and going, how much do you say? Well, it's a message that our culture needs in health. And so it's one of those things where I'm going, we have a lot of young families, and it's appropriate to go after this. Um, if you go back and, and read this Proverbs passage together, I do not want to see a Facebook post about it. <laughs> I'll unfriend you. <laughs> but we have the right in the Lord to ask that he show us how to live in all health. And it reaches a lot of different facets of life. Um, let's go back to 1 Peter. Out of the frying pan and into the fire. Long ago, this is again about beauty, those women who worshipped God and put their hope in Him made themselves beautiful by putting their husbands first. For example, Sarah obeyed Abraham and called him her master. You are her true children if you do it as right and don't let anything frighten you. Intriguing passage. Sarah was known for her beauty throughout the region, right? She was known as a very beautiful woman even past her late 70s. Yeah. So that said, the only verse I could find that where she's referring to Abraham as master is one where she is being promised children. The Lord is making this promise to Abraham. She's laughing and going, my Lord is pretty old. You know, my ma master, he's, he's an old man. And would I have this joy of children even now? And what comes across is this writer is saying, you're part of her children, <laughs> just like Abraham's children, children of the faith. He says, you're, 
you're her children if you'll respond similarly. But what I also want you to note is that if this was law, why would it be seen as this verse of honor for Sarah? If, if this was what was commanded of Christians, you know, call your husband master, why would this unusual event be brought out? To me, it's a thing that she decided to honor her husband with this declaration. And Peter's looking at it and saying, that was, that was honorable what she did. But if we're going to try to make this a law, that's, that misses the whole point. So when you walk back through these kind of things, you're going, okay. When Peter's addressing these issues, and he's making these declarations of, a husband is to lead and a wife is to, to put her husband first. And we had seen out of, out of uh, Ephesians how both sides can honor God where a wife can, can honor her husband like, Christ, like church does for Christ. And a husband, if he's willing to lay down his life, it's a model of, of, of Christ serving the church and dying for us. Peter has taken a similar approach and he's going, if you will function together in this relationship, even though it has the, the, the umbrella of authority, if you understand that you can honor Christ through the way that you live, he says there's a beauty to be seen in this thing. And there's an honor that goes to God out of this if you live your life this way. The last part of that verse is, don't be frightened. Interesting thought. Usually we associate, I'll submit to someone if I am afraid enough of them. He's making a declaration, don't let your fear keep you from doing what's right in these relationships. So in other words, if we have a trust in God that He sees our situation and understands our plight... He is capable of bringing good out of those events no matter what they are. And so he says, don't let fear be the driving force in your life this way. Let's go on. If you're a husband, you should be thoughtful of your wife. Treat her with honor. Because she isn't as strong as you are, she shares with you in the gift of life. Um, let's just take this on the surface. Most men are stronger there than wives. But this declaration is that might isn't right. Isn't that what you read out of it? That just because you have a physical power over here doesn't give you the right to demand? He's saying, yeah, she's weaker than you. That, you've got to also understand, the other translations that go, she's an heir with you. Heir of all God's good things. Heir in eternity. And so she, she um, inherits just as much as you do. And, and so... He's saying, you know, you have a responsibility to honor her. And you better be thoughtful because she's your partner and she's partners in eternity 
and co-heir. And so it's a, it's a powerful thought for guys saying, you better get this right. And he, and he finishes it off with this thing, you don't want your prayers to be hindered, right? So I've mentioned before, when I was first preaching, I used to be calling Shore up on Saturday nights because God was quiet to me. And I'd be going, I'm sorry I did fill in the blank. Uh, there were a number of things in those days. Um, I've gotten a little more careful in regard to that just because there's this knowledge of I'm going to have to answer for it at some point. But it's a powerful understanding to have and say there's a need to be thoughtful and honoring. Know that this person is an heir with you. If you are created in partnership and you end inheriting together, he says that should have a powerful influence on how you live today. Let's go back because I want to summarize this and look at the points that have been made. Okay? Number one. God works through earthly relationships. Men and women were created as rulers of creation and partners in labor. Husbands are to lead their homes. That's kind of non-negotiable areas in regard to Scripture. Now you can, <laughs> you can tweak what you will, but that's the, the main teaching of Scripture. Okay? Two, beauty is to be prioritized from inward then outward. Beauty is not dismissed, but outward beauty is recognized as temporal. Number three, intimate pleasure is part of God's design for marriage. Number four, wives hold power of positive distraction in regard to their husbands. Number five, Sarah's calling Abraham master was an act of honor, not law. Number six, Godly submission is not the result of fearing another, but of trusting God. I, I will make one comment here. Two reasons to violate an authority person over you. If they call you into something that violates the laws of God or ask you to participate in that, you have no responsibility to honor that demand. Your first re responsibility is before God. Secondly, if that authority figure is stepping into a sphere that isn't theirs and demanding something of you that they have no right to demand, that's where you say civil disobedience is appropriate or a disobedience of whatever nature. That in some measure is what we are beginning to wrestle through even as a country. When we had, say, a um, constitution and bylaws, and yet if the government is overstepping its boundaries, then the question comes up, do I have a responsibility to be obedient to that? It's a, t it's a very difficult issue, and it's something that I think as a, uh, a body of believers we're going to be wrestling with more and more. That's the civil application. That also has family application. Okay? Um, 
Okay. Number seven. Might is not the equivalent of right. Okay. Number eight. Husbands are to be thoughtful and honoring of their wives. Number nine, we are partners from creation and heirs together in Christ. Number 10, we have the right to pray for deep satisfaction with one another at a multitude of levels. I heard a powerful illustration this week. I was talking with one of my friends who uh, was a homicide detective for many years, and uh, he said that when I go out to the island, which, you know, Shar and I will go out there most days, just because we, we love the place, and she gets cranky if we don't, uh, but <laughs> it, it's a time together, and it's, it's become an awesome place for us, but he says, when I go out to the island, I see where a man was murdered, and he saw, I still see that in my mind. I see where a, a gal had a motorcycle accident and died. He says, my picture of the island is vastly different than most people's. If you are coming out of a background of abuse, passages of Scripture are very hard to look at and even how do I see this in health or how do I see it as a thing of beauty? If you're coming out of a background of pornography, again, how do I put the Scripture in place? How do I treat it properly? If you've come out of a very promiscuous background, again, how do I apply the principles that God calls me to in marriage? And, and you can write your own scenario but God wants to speak into every facet of life. And He desires to speak into our marriages at a multitude of levels. And He desires to bring healing and wholeness to us and even take care of memories and, in a sense, take the sting and, and the graphicness out of them so that we can see the true thing of beauty that He's called us to. It's an awesome thing. And in Christ, we have that privilege. Lord, we ask that as we've looked at these scriptures, that you speak to our hearts as to what your desires are for each of us. And particularly for husbands and wives, as we've walked through this, we ask for each one that you will say, this is what I desire, or this is what I hope to see accomplished in you. And then, Lord, give us the courage to walk forward in that. Amen. If we can get this right, this whole thing of marriage relationship, and moving from that into family, that's the most powerful influence that we can have in our community and our society. It's desperately needed in this day. And so, as I would pray for you, I would just pray that God will make that a mark upon us that we would be building strong, strong marriages, healthy in every facet. And that what God would give us vision of what, even what we should be seeking to attain. You know, if it's just about you getting your rights or, you know, this, <laughs> you've missed the point. God calls us to, to yield to and give to each other, honor and serve. 
But as we do that, there's this privilege of seeing his power demonstrated in health. So Lord, I would pray that that would be a mark upon us. I pray specifically for each of the marriages here that you will bring them into health. Lord, even as uh, was first mentioned in this passage, the woman with an unsaved husband, we pray that that man would be drawn to you. For a man with an unsaved wife, I pray that she would be drawn to you. I pray that you would bring a, a wholesomeness that's only dreamed about at this point. That you calm the sorrows of the heart and grant a confidence in your goodness. Lord, for those that are seeking to serve you and yet realize there's a lot to get put together yet, I ask, Lord, for your intervention. I ask for wisdom from you for each partner and understanding how to serve and honor as co-heirs. And Lord Jesus, we ask for each of us that we would know the fullness of joy that you've called us all into. That we would understand the favor that you intend for our lives. I ask, Lord, as each one goes into the community, that you will give them words of life to speak over others. I ask that their deeds be fitting with the workings of your kingdom and that you would enable them with the supernatural. Be exalted and lifted up, our Lord, we pray. We love you this day. God bless you.